From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The U.S. will pull all of its troops out of Afghanistan in less than five months. Congressman Jason Crow, a veteran of that war, supports the withdrawal but says it's one of the riskiest things the military can do. Because as you draw down forces and there are fewer and fewer remaining at forward operating bases or these remote outposts, those that uh, do remain are more and more vulnerable. Then there are the risks once you leave, says veteran and state representative David Ortiz. If we're not making sure that we continue to advise at least the Afghani government and their military so that they can take care of their own, then I am fearful that we might be inviting a 9-11 style attack. Both men reflect on their service in a 20-year war and on what lessons the U.S. should learn. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. This September 11th, the U.S. will mark 20 years since the deadliest attack on its soil. 9-11-2021 is also the deadline President Biden has set to get all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan, a war the United States has waged since shortly after the towers fell in New York. Today, we get perspective on this withdrawal and on the realities ahead for the war's many veterans from two Coloradans who served in Afghanistan and who are now in public office. Congressman Jason Crow is a former Army Ranger who served in both Afghanistan and Iraq. He's a member of the House Armed Services Committee. And thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. And State Representative David Ortiz of Littleton is a former Army helicopter pilot. He survived a catastrophic crash in Afghanistan. Welcome, Representative. Ryan, thank you. Representative Ortiz, you followed in your father's footsteps, becoming a pilot. And I mentioned that helicopter crash, which left you paralyzed from the waist down. That was in 2012, during your first deployment. I know you're so often asked about that, and so... I wonder, actually, if you'd tell me about another experience in Afghanistan that stands out to you. The thing that sticks out the most about my time in Afghanistan, besides the bonding and and the antics and the pranking that goes between the brothers and sisters you serve with, is the tough nature of the job. Being a pilot in the air, you have a bird's eye view that others don't have. You're often working with drones and A-10s that are in the area, as well as the infantry that are on the ground. I mean, our profile, flying profile, was like 25 feet to 150 feet off the ground. And so I think the memory that sticks out the most is an MRAP, which is one of the armored vehicles being cut completely in half from an IED um, and just seeing the black crater burnt into the ground and seeing the blood pool, um, I think, is a memory that I'll always carry with me. Did anyone survive that particular incident? Yes, uh, there were members of the convoy that did survive. Um, I do believe that we lost three in that incident. Did you, to some extent, have to get, I don't want to say used to, but sort of inured to that loss of life? I was very careful to not allow myself to, to be honest with you. And I think the moment that you do start getting complacent or used to loss of life, I think that's when you should talk to your 
um, spiritual guide or, you know, a mental health care professional. But I think feeling loss of life, whether it is um, your brothers and sisters on the ground or even civilians or the enemy is something that I really think that people should hold on to to never get complacent and okay with that. Congressman Crow, I wonder if there's a moment, a memory from your time in Afghanistan that has become indelible. Uh, that's a tough one, Ryan. There, there's a lot of memories, a, a lot of you know, incidents that happen that are, are forever seared in my memory. Uh, but the one that comes back a lot is my last deployment to Afghanistan in 2005. We lost many Rangers and uh, several Navy SEALs as part of our Special Operations Task Force. And you know that incident was actually made into the movie Lone Survivor. Uh, that was a tough way to end that rotation and my time there. And it just reminds me how many good soldiers we lost during the 20 years of that war. And to have that be the coda of your service there, did something feel somehow incomplete when you left or unachieved? Well, you know, I I think the way that any of the veterans look at it is uh, you can't go to war, whether it be in Iraq or Afghanistan, someplace else, and, and come back and not be a changed person. And all of us who have gone there and fought there and and served, you know, leave a certain part of ourselves, leave a certain part of our hearts in those places. So there will always be a part of my heart that's in Afghanistan and with the Afghan people and and with the men and women that I served with, some of whom didn't come back. You know, that's, uh, I think, something that we all process. And I think all of us are processing right now what that means uh, with the recent announcement by the Biden administration to withdraw our, our troops. Certainly, we've been thinking about it right now, and and I'm still processing that on a personal level as well. Mm. Representative Ortiz, could the U.S. be allowing for the sorts of conditions that the 9-11 attacks grew out of by leaving Afghanistan? It depends on the way that we leave. Um, So I'll just highlight some of my biggest concerns. My number one concern is the fact that the Taliban is able to influence so much power in these negotiations. And it's evidenced by the fact that a lot of women are being left out. There are women that serve in the the Afghani government, um, but as the Taliban are taking a front and center row on these peace negotiations, there is a noticeable absence of women being involved. You know, if we're not making sure that we continue to advise at least the Afghani government and their military so that they can take care of their own, then I am fearful that that we might be inviting a 9-11 style attack. Um, At the same time, though, we want to balance that with letting the Afghanistan people create a government that reflects their values and what they want their country to become. Is the U.S. withdrawing from Afghanistan too soon, Congressman? No, I I don't think so. I support the president's decision to withdraw forces. We have been there for 20 years. Uh, This is uh, by far America's longest war. Uh, We've spent a lot of blood. Uh, We've lost a lot of good men and women. We spent uh, many hundreds of billions of dollars at uh, this war, we have uh, prevented another attack on the homeland uh, like 9-11. The Afghan people have made a lot of progress in a lot of places. There's a lot of things that remain undone, of course, and you know, a lot of people are well aware of those. Uh, but there's been progress and advances in human rights and the status of, of uh, women and children in particular in Afghanistan. So for me, the decision, uh, I think, was the right one and is timely. But the, the, the next question is, is how are we going to do it? And as a member of the Armed Services Committee and the House Intelligence Committee, I'm spending my time now asking the tough questions of the administration and of our military leaders to make sure we're doing this in the right way. 
You mentioned the cost. Uh, according to the Cost of War Project, the price tag for the war in Afghanistan is more than $2.2 trillion, more than 2,300 U.S. lives lost. Estimates of Afghan civilian deaths put that number at around 40,000. And I think that there are any number of people, despite the progress you mentioned there, asking, was this war worth it? How, how do you answer that, Congressman? I think that's a tough question to answer, and I'm not sure that there's a, a right answer to that question. Uh, what, I, what I think is really important, though, is that we separate the service of individual men and women who served from the political discussions and debates about uh, whether or not we achieved our long-term and short-term goals, because we're going to debate that for some time to come. Uh, what's really important, and this is particularly important for veterans right now who are processing this decision and asking themselves, you know, was you know what I did worth it? Um, was the service of the, the men and women that I served with who didn't come home, you know, what, what is the nature of that sacrifice? And I think it's incredibly important that we come up and say, you know, men and women answered the call. We now have two generations of Americans who stepped up after 9-11, raised their right hand to serve and, and to wear the uniform. Uh, and that service and that sacrifice is worth um, honoring. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why me and, and uh, many members of Congress, over 100 of us have now come together, but uh, me and Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin are, are leading the effort to build a global war on terror memorial because we understand the healing power of place. You know, anybody who's been to the Vietnam Wall, understands how important it is to have a place, a location where veterans and their families can come and reflect on those that they lost uh, and heal. And, and we now think it's time for this generation of veterans to have the same opportunity. What I hear you both saying is the how is very important here, how the U.S. withdraws and to what extent it remains involved in Afghan affairs afterwards. Representative Ortiz, do you want to say a few words about what you think an ideal withdrawal looks like? Yeah, um, you know, I, I was just a combat aviator, just a helicopter pilot, so I don't know how much weight this is going to carry. But as someone that did serve over there, I think an ideal situation would be one where the Afghan people are empowered to forge their own path and create a nation in the vision that they want to see, while also respecting the gains, as Congressman Kirk mentioned, that we've seen, especially among women and children. That is that is my chief concern. And then also making sure that that we are helping to create a future for them that not only creates security for them, but but secure the region and for the entire world. I mean, imagine the end of the Vietnam War, right, where there was a lot of veterans that probably thought they never wanted to go back. Um, but I, you know, having visited Vietnam recently and Ken Burns having done that documentary. I'm hoping to have that kind of style of, of a moment in Afghanistan. It is an outdoorsman paradise. It has the potential to be, and I would love to monoski on the mountains of Afghanistan sometime in the future. That would be my dream. Practically, what do you think it looks like to achieve what you've said there, though? I mean, is it, is it kind of diplomatic boots on the ground or what? I think it's going to be a mix, and I think it's going to be up to, to those that are much smarter than me um, around diplomacy, around our intelligence agency, the CIA, and our special forces to continue to work with, advise, and and support the Afghan government and the Afghan people and make sure we're not leaving a power vacuum. I mean, that's how the Taliban was able to take control in the first place. And just to make sure um, that we're doing our part, not just to abandon the Afghan people completely, but we have been at war for 20 years, and, and it's time to move away from the active combat operations. 
Congressman Crow, uh, shed a little light on what you'd like the details to look like, again, as a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Yeah, Ryan. So I've had uh, actually a lot of discussions with uh, our our top senior military leaders over the last week. Uh, Actually, just yesterday, I was discussing this with uh, Secretary Austin and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley, uh, as well as Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State. So those conversations will continue. Uh, There's four main considerations here. Well, you're going to hear the term being tossed around by senior military leaders over the next four months, uh, the term retrograde. And what that means, uh, that's just uh, military slang for uh, withdrawal operations, which actually are the riskiest things that you do in the military. Because as you draw down forces and there are fewer and fewer remaining at forward operating bases or these remote outposts, those that uh, do remain are more and more vulnerable for obvious reasons, uh, because there are fewer of them and they have fewer resources. So Uh, What you're going to see is a very short-term increase in uh, combat forces there over the next couple of months to actually create the conditions for those withdrawal to protect those. And then we have to do it very methodically so that um, we do not expose those forces to Taliban uh, uh, attacks. Number two is the protection of the Afghan interpreters and translators and others who served alongside us at great personal risk, uh, many of whom have lost their lives. Uh, by taking on the mission of assisting us with those uh, support. And that's why I announced the creation of a task force in Washington, which is a bipartisan task force to um, engage with the administration to make sure that we are bringing those Afghans and their families uh, who are at risk of losing their lives to the United States. Yeah, let me uh, pause you there, because we know that Iraqi interpreters uh, did not always have the easiest time. Uh, many of them were quite vulnerable, left behind in Iraq. Some of them had trouble coming to the United States. The United States ne- didn't necessarily have their back. It sounds like you want to make sure that doesn't happen with Afghan interpreters. Yeah, there are uh, vast improvements that need to be made to these programs. There's no doubt about it. We have to provide more opportunities, more special immigrant visas, uh, and we have to make that program work better. We have brought people back, uh, you know, the thousands from Afghanistan and Iraq. In fact, my district director, the person who runs uh, my operations in Colorado, uh, is uh, an Iraqi SIV. Uh, he actually was an interpreter for the U.S. Army uh, after the invasion, and his life uh, became in jeopardy. And he used the SIV program to flee Iraq and came to the United States, and uh, just a, a perfect example for how this program should work. So, uh, there are not enough SIV, uh, n- not enough of these visas available. Uh, there are over 18,000 Afghans who have applied uh, for this program. There's only 11,000 that are currently authorized, but the State Department is telling us that they only have about 9,000, uh, um, the capacity to process 9,000. So that is not going to be good enough. Uh, we, we, we cannot leave thousands of these Afghans who stood shoulder to shoulder with us to um, the whims of the Taliban. Representative Ortiz, do you remember those interpreters being... Uh, important in your service in Afghanistan. Absolutely. Anyone that worked on the ground or worked with units on the ground knows that they saved American lives and at great risk to themselves and to their family members. Um, they prove themselves on the battlefield and they're proving themselves here at home in the U.S. as force multipliers and just adding and, and such a critical part to our community. Congressman Crow, you had a few other points to make about what you want to see from this withdrawal. The other things we have to make sure that we're doing is uh, protecting our NATO allies. Uh, You know, let's not forget that the only time in the history of NATO, the NATO alliance, that Article 5, which is the article that says, you know, an attack on one is an attack on all. It's a mutual, called the mutual self-defense obligation. 
The only time in the history of that alliance, over 70-plus years, that it's been invoked was after 9-11, when our NATO allies came to our aid and went to Afghanistan with us, uh, where they remain to this day. In fact, there are more NATO troops there by a fairly large number uh, than there are U.S. troops. So we have to make sure we're doing this in close coordination with them uh, in that we, we leave methodically and together to honor that promise and that uh, commitment that they've made to us over the last 20 years. Congressman Crow, should the Pentagon budget shrink after the withdrawal? Well, you know, there's different line items in the budget. The cost for the war in Afghanistan actually comes from a different fund than the Pentagon budget. So it's not uh, kind of comparing the $2 amounts. What I, what I do think uh, is that we can be far more efficient in the use of our funds uh, because, you know, the threats that we face now in the 21st century are extremely different than the threats that we faced in the 20th century. You know, we're not looking at meeting, you know, hordes of tanks on the plains of Eastern Europe. Uh, we, there are technologies and, and capabilities that are actually cheaper to field that uh, can uh, give us more capability, more ability to protect ourselves uh, that actually cost less. So making that transition uh, is going to be a really important one. And it's often referred to as moving away from legacy systems, these very expensive systems that we've had for decades. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong, there are, there's an awful lot of lobbyists floating around this town that, that want us to build these expensive things. Uh, but uh, I'm pushing back hard on that because uh, we have to do right by the American taxpayer. We have to do right by our men and women who need the technology and the resources that are relevant to the 21st century, and we need to protect the country. Uh, And we can do that in a smarter, more efficient way. Representative, as vets who served in Afghanistan continue to transition into civilian life, how do you think the state can support their transition? Well, my biggest ask for anyone listening in the state right now is to call your state representatives and senators because I am sponsoring a bill along with other Republicans and Democrats, all veterans, that would allow private businesses to implement an optional veteran preference hiring. And it would only be used as a tiebreaker. I mean, in the midst of a high suicide rate among female veterans, it's 28.5 per 100,000. Among men, it's 30. And just to give a context, female civilian suicide rate is five per 100,000. So in the context of mental health issues and homelessness and the tie between having a mission and purpose and employment and suicidal ideation, my ask would be to call your state representatives and senators and ask them to support this bill. This is a real tangible way that we can support veterans as we're transitioning away from combat operations in Afghanistan and transitioning out of the military. So that if a veteran is up for a job and a non-veteran is uh, an equal contender, there's slightly more status weight given to the veteran? There can be. It's optional the entire step of the way. But, the, you know, it has to be stated that this business implements a, a hiring preference um, let's say you have, you know, a white male civilian and a vet, a female veteran, and they have the same education level, the same experience, then the private business is allowed to, if they want to consider their veteran status as a preference for hiring that individual. Okay. And that's a, a state law it would be, and that would be for not just the public sector, obviously, which has some of this inherent, but for the private sector. Absolutely right. And that's important because I think the federal government does a good job in giving preference hiring to veterans. I know the state fire departments do give preferential points for veteran status, but not all of us want to work <clears throat> for a big government or institutional organization after serving in the military. Some of us want to go into private industry, and we on average have a higher unemployment rate of 2 to 4%. In San Diego, they did a study, even though vet- their veterans are 6% higher educated, their unemployment rate was 16% higher. So there's a definite need because there's a correlation between 
a recent window of transition. And this would allow veterans that are within five years of their transition to be able to benefit from a preference hiring. Representative Ortiz, I know you have to get back onto the floor, so I, I will wrap up with this question for you. Do you think that there are lessons from Afghanistan the U.S. should apply before considering entering a different war theater, a future war theater? Um, I guess if, if we're going to talk about things to consider and lessons learned, the first and foremost is that diplomacy and building up our soft power is always going to be cheaper in lives and in treasure than anything else. I think that's that's the biggest lesson that I want us to learn. And, and let's be cognizant, too, that the reason why the Taliban was able to take power in the first place was we supported an insurgent fight against the Russians and we left a vacuum once that fight was done. And to be very cognizant um, and responsible with our military actions and support in the future and making sure that we are not just leaving power vacuums in that way. Um, I think that's one of the biggest lessons. I think another lesson that we learned was not to overextend ourselves. I mean, we were looking at, at two conflicts at the same time in Iraq and Afghanistan. And let's be very clear that that um, a lot of the planning and the sheltering of those that attacked us on 9-11 were based and, and saw shelter in Afghanistan. Representative, thanks so much. I'll let you get back to the business of state governments. And uh, Congressman Crow. before we let you go, I'd like you to reflect on that same question, please. Yeah, Ryan, I think one of the big takeaways for me is the extent to which the balance between Congress and the executive branch has become imbalanced over the last 20 years, you know, after 9-11. And, you know, unfortunately, what happened was uh, we have what are called these uh, authorizations for use of military force, these AUMFs that have been granted to administrations, both Republicans and Democrat administrations. And they've been treated for two decades as a blank check the use of force. You know, what was originally authorized to, for um, us to go to Afghanistan has been now being used in dozens of different places around uh, the world. And that's not okay. Uh, you know, the, the founders relegated to the Congress, uh, the People's House, the decision of whether or not to send our men and women to war, the most solemn, grave uh, responsibility that we have, that is for Congress to decide. Uh, so it is time for us to take that blank check back. It's time for Congress to step back in and say, we are not going to be a country that will be at a perpetual state of war. Uh, if, if, if any president, regardless of party, wants to use force and send our men and women overseas, they're going to have to come to Congress and make that case. Congressman, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. Congressman Jason Crow, Democrat from Aurora. Earlier, we heard from State Representative David Ortiz, Democrat from Littleton. Both served in Afghanistan and reflected on the U.S. withdrawal after 20 years. Back in the next half hour, I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Climate change is a global issue with undeniable local impact. I'm Joe Wirtz, editor of CPR's climate team, and we're focused on deeply researched, comprehensive coverage about the environment in and affecting Colorado. You already hear this work on your radio. Now you can also get it in your inbox. Sign up for CPR News Climate Weekly for a digest of fact-based reporting on the impact, solutions, and political aspects of climate change. Sign up at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. So how's your mental health these days? It can feel like waves of loss and change keep crashing, and trauma takes a toll. 
Dr. Shaley Jane is a psychiatrist who specializes in post-traumatic stress disorder, and she's seeing more and more patients with pandemic PTSD. It's definitely very evident right now, but I think it's going to become more and more obvious what the long-term psychological toll is in the weeks, months, and years, maybe even decades that follow. I mean, think of all the factors at play. Death, the fear of death, job loss, grief, isolation. And for many people, those are compounded by systemic inequality and racism. But there are tools to support yourself and your community. That is the take-home message. Hope, hope, hope. So that's exciting. And on Tuesday, this will all be the subject of a special Colorado Matters with host Avery Lill. And we want you to be a part of the conversation. So when you picture your pandemic stress, what does it look like? For me, I'm afraid I'm getting used to the isolation and that I'm going to have a hard time reintegrating. So I suppose my stress also looks like my retreat, my home. And here's how Avery answers. A lot of days, it feels like I'm lying at the bottom of a pond. I can see the light, the places I want to be, the things I want to be doing, the things I need to be doing above the water. But I feel the weight of all that water on my chest, so I'm stuck. I am hoping for more buoyant days soon. Hmm. So how about you? Picture your pandemic stress. Get illustrative and let us hear it. Email coloradomatters at cpr.org, coloradomatters at cpr.org, or leave us a voicemail, 303-871-9191, extension 4480. So that's CPR's main number, extension 4480, and we may use your comments on Tuesday's special. The Oscars are this weekend. Among the nominees is Minari by filmmaker Lee Isaac Chung, up for six awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Director for Chung. He was born in Denver and later moved with his family to Arkansas, where they started a farm. Chung's parents came to the U.S. from Korea in search of the American dream, and Minari is a retelling of his childhood. We spoke in February. Isaac, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much. Um, This is great to be speaking to the state of my birth. Of your birth. I want to start by (laughs) thanking you for this film. It gripped me from the get-go. I can't stop thinking about its emotional depth. How, How old were you when your family moved from Denver to the farm in Arkansas? Well, actually, there's a lot that's fictionalized in the story. So I was only maybe two months old when we moved out of Denver. My, my dad started off in Denver um, as a chicken sexer. And uh, that's where he saved up enough money for my mom and sister to move from Korea over to the U.S. Now, you, you can't just and... say chicken sexer like that without explaining. what a chi- <laughs> <laughs> If you just said a term we hear every day, Isaac, what is a chicken sexer? Well, you know, this is a job that affects almost anyone who eats chicken. So it it is something people should know. But uh, it's a job in which baby chickens, after they've hatched, need to be separated by gender. And there's a special technique that was created by the Japanese. And it's something that a lot of Korean immigrants actually did in this country. They were the ones who, in these dusty warehouses, were separating male and female chickens. And it's a skill that 
you learn. It's not very easy or intuitive. You, you really just have to train many months for this. It is arduous work, and this is how your parents earned the money to be able to buy the farm where you eventually moved. And th this is depicted as yeah. well in the film. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, they moved first to Atlanta. And then from Atlanta, around the age I was uh, five years old, uh, we ended up on that farm in the Ozarks. So that's what you see in the film. I suppose that means you don't have vivid memories of Colorado. Uh, Arkansas might have been, what, your first images? Yeah, but I'd like to think that it was still in my blood and bones because I still love the mountains. And uh, my, my parents and sister and husband all live in Colorado Springs now. So we know Colorado quite well now. Okay, we're hoping they're listening, Isaac. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what was that move to Arkansas like? As a kid, I just remember that for me, it was a big adventure to go to this wild plot of land that my dad uh, was so excited about. Um, he was always talking about the color of the dirt, and that's something you see in the film. Uh, we had 50 acres of land, and he didn't tell my mom that we were going to do this. So that's something you see in the film as well. <laughs> so I, I kind of remember those conflicts as, uh, that, that they were having as they were trying to eke out a new living on a farm. But for me, I mean, I, I loved it. And now as a grown man, I kind of look back at my dad who did this at the age that uh, I am now, mm. um, bringing the family over there. And I have a whole different appreciation and perspective for that time in my life, essentially. Now, in the film, the, the adults, the, your, your father, they grow Korean vegetables. Was that true as well for your family in real life? Yeah. Uh, so many of the things that you see in the film, they start off from actual uh, events that happened in my life. And I'd say that a lot of what's fiction in the film is the way in which the people are depicted. I, I tried to fictionalize them more so that uh, I can increase the drama and the tensions and conflicts between everybody. But there are a lot of elements like the fact that my dad did try to grow Korean produce. He was growing Korean pears. Uh, that was what he was he was doing. And it was tough work. And that's something that we, we tried to depict as well in the, in the movie, that farming is really, really difficult work. I, I want to follow up on two things. You talked about the color of the earth. What was the color of the earth there? Um, there in the Ozark region, it's uh, a deep red color. My dad used to say it's really good for fruit trees. So that's why we ended up doing Korean pears. And what does a Korean pear taste like? It, the texture is nice and crisp, but it's sweet and has kind of a taste of a pear that you think about in, in uh, Western pears. Um, and this was in the 80s. No one had heard of Korean pears or Asian pears. And my dad thought it was going to take off. And what I've noticed now is that uh, Korean pears are becoming more trendy, at least here in Los Angeles and other places I've lived. And uh, I think he was a bit ahead of his time, maybe too far ahead of his time. They're perfectly round, right? They're not what we think of as pear-shaped, if I'm thinking of the ones you're talking about. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Some, sometimes people call them Chinese apples because, you know, the, the texture and the shape of them. They have very thick skin, uh, but they're very sweet. That's the joy of eating them. There's a moment of tremendous symbolism from the get-go. The Yi family moves into a home that's up on blocks. It's a double wide. But there's no staircase to get in. They have to, like, leap in. And it really did strike me as a symbol of the difficulties that they would face, the uphill battle, if you will. Mm. Talk about setting a tone in a film early on. 
Yeah, I, I'm so glad you 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 saw that and you appreciate that. Uh, I, I want to correct you that it was a single wide because those of us who've lived in single wides, we dream of the double wide, um, <laughs> but it was a single wide. And uh, that's one of the details that I, I do remember about that home is that it was up on, uh, when we got there, it was up on wheels. And I found that so fascinating as a kid. And there was a feeling of uh, mobility and possibility with this house. And that's kind of the way I felt that my dad looked at it. But the way my mom would look at it, of course, is, you know, you show up and there are no front steps. There's no way to really get inside unless uh, your dad picks you up or uh, you're helped up. And that to me kind of felt like a symbolic tension between the husband and wife in this story. And, and it was a reason why I wanted to put that detail in. Um, a pivotal moment comes when grandma moves from Korea to Arkansas. And the two kids who've never met her really don't like her much at first or the smells she brings. There's a Korea smell. You've never even been to Korea. Grandma smells like Korea. David. In Korean there, the dad is threatening to spank the boy, tells him to go to bed. Isaac, fundamentally, this is a multi-generational story. Could you tell us about how you developed all of these connections within the family? For me, for a long time, I wanted to tell a story like this in which there are multiple generations. My view on that is within a multi-generational perspective on life, you really get different truths and different ideas and different wisdoms. You know, the, the, the wisdom of a child is just as prescient and important as the wisdom of someone who is an elderly person. And I love that idea that I could maybe shape a story in which all of these perspectives are trying to figure out the same thing. And to me, that's mm. how to stay together, how to survive together, how to love each other. And that's what really I, I hope this film would be all about, this family that's really learning to to be together and love each other. Yeah, and they have a rough time of it. I mean, the, the family is nearly torn apart uh, by the difficulty of the farming life. Um, mm. What an interesting uh, challenge to start casting people who play your family. <laughs> like, I wonder, I wonder if you wanted to have nothing to do with it and just say, I'm surrendering this, or if you uh, felt that you needed to micromanage it, you know, did... <laughs> um, you know, I'm a firm believer in the art of filmmaking and the, the art that every single person brings. And so even with the actors, like, I, I tend not to micromanage. I like the idea that everybody's a creator, so one of the first things I told the actors was, I trust you. I trust you as an artist to create something new out of this. And I don't want you to try to imitate. So I asked them not to imitate any of my family members. I didn't share any pictures of mm. my family or provide any clips or anything. But and what about the I, casting? I you had to choose them first. Yeah, even in choosing them, um, I tried not to think too much about my family, if that makes sense, because I didn't want to become too self-indulgent with this film. Mm. I, I wanted it to work as a story. So I was interested in finding the artisans, really, to, to find the people who could do it. There are characters in this film beyond your family. So early on, we meet a man named Paul who offers to work 
for the Yi family as a farmhand. And Paul's a devout Christian. He prays frequently, speaks in tongues, and he literally carries a cross, a life-sized cross every Sunday, uh, I suppose, to walk in the footsteps of Christ. Um, anyhow, mm-hmm. as, as he and Jacob Yi are tilling the soil, Paul suggests that the farmland might be cursed. The previous farmer had killed himself. You might want to think about doing something out here. You know, what? You know what an exorcism is? <laughs> yeah. No, it's pure so. You know, what happened out here, that's no good. Something like that. You know, it's no good. Okay, now things, things will grow. Isaac, did the land ever feel like it was working against your family? Um, in many ways, I think that is something that I did notice as a child, the feeling that a garden can, as we see in scripture, almost capture the entire human experience in a way. There were lots of snakes on our property, very poisonous snakes, I should add. And it was just tough. Uh, life was a toil. Digging the earth and trying to let it yield and submit in a way is very tough work. But then at the same time, there was my grandmother who kind of did the reverse. She, she submitted to the land and she found where we needed to go to plant this plant called Minari and where it would thrive. And that's something that I felt like I learned from that experience too, just the different ways in which we can look at land and approach land. And maybe that helps us look at how we can approach life as well. Do you miss farm life? Um, oh, yes, I, I do miss it in many ways. Um, I live in LA now. I lived in New York for about nine years. And uh, it's always part of you. I, I heard a friend of mine told me that wherever you live when you're about eight years old will probably be the place that you feel most at peace um, when, when things are really difficult. And sometimes I wonder that because uh, when times are tough, I, I do kind of wish I could go walk around on a farm somewhere. You mentioned that your family uh, still lives in Colorado, Colorado Springs. Uh, yes, that's right. What do they make of the film? And are they the, the ultimate, um, I don't want to say the ultimate audience, but are they like the audience you were most interested in pleasing or not? I, th- I would say that uh, they were the audience I was most scared of. So <laughs> Maybe that's a better way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Um, just because I know uh, I'm, I'm getting so personal with this film and uh, I'm really talking a lot about my memories of childhood. I think they were stressed uh, before I showed it to them. But I had them come out here from Colorado. They came out here and watched the film with me and in uh, one of my family, other family members' living rooms. And um, it was such an experience watching it. They were getting so emotional and uh, they told me all night long they couldn't dream about anything else but our farm and that time together. And um, the way that we talked to each other after that, I, I just felt like we were really seeing each other in a way. It, it felt like, yeah, it, it was magical. That's, that's all I can say. Um, and it was probably the most special screening that we've had. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Ryan. This was great.
Director Lee Isaac Chung speaking with me in February. Chung was born in Denver. His film, Minari, is up for six Academy Awards. When we come back, a jazz musician gives a different Oscar-nominated movie its soul. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Something has shifted in the way we're all talking about cannabis legalization. This is about repairing harm that's been done to communities for the last 40 years as a part of the failed war on drugs. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and I host On Something, a podcast all about life after marijuana legalization. And in this upcoming season, we're focusing entirely on the pitfalls along the path to social equity. The new season of On Something starts May 11th. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Saxophonist Tia Fuller has had some impressive gigs. The Denver native and Grammy nominee has performed with Janelle Monet, Jay-Z, Aretha Franklin. She toured as part of Beyonce's band that played at the White House. But her biggest gig to date is being featured in the Oscar-nominated animated film Soul, playing saxophone as renowned jazz musician Dorothea Williams. Tia Fuller is a music educator at the Berklee College of Music in Boston, as well as the Sax Loft. She spoke with my colleague Avery Lill. Soul is the latest movie from Pixar. It tackles life, death, finding purpose, and we even get a glimpse of the great beyond. But it begins as the story of an aspiring jazz musician, Joe Gardner. As a jazz musician, when you found out Pixar was making a movie about your passion and profession, what did you want to make sure they captured? Well, Pete Docter, he's the executive producer, and um, he's the one who actually came up with the idea and the theme, and it was really inspired by his son. He had a newly born son, and he was looking at his son as an infant, and he was asking himself, what is his purpose? But I find it really ironic because this is something that I... I'm constantly thinking about and grappling with and then also trying to incorporate into my personal music. And um, as far as, okay, what is my purpose? What is my spark? And how am I able to share that with the world? So the entire plot of the story is it correlates with how I feel as a musician and as an individual. And we hear about that a lot in the film is finding the spark. What is your spark as a musician? Is that something that you like can put your finger on even? Yeah, um, I would say my spark, well, since I was 23, I felt like I had tapped into it uh, as to what it was. And I think it's to be a light for others, whether it be um, in my family or in the classroom, performing on the stage. There's always an element of not a teaching component, but an inspirational component that I always try to infuse into my classes. It's really a holistic approach to being an artist. It's not about how well you can sing or you can play, but it's also about your character. All of that, to me, has really come back to my purpose as to being a light and really trying to serve as a selfless vessel for others um, so that the music and whatever God wants to use me for uh, will flow through me. I love that. So the storyline was already in place before you got brought on board. How did you get involved with Pixar's project? Yeah, so I actually got a phone call from Randall Kennedy, who is a booking agent, and they told me that Pixar was casting for the band, and he told me about the character. He was like, we're looking for a badass saxophone player who happens to be a black woman. And I was like, what? That's going to be the character? He was like, yeah, and we were wondering if you could do this record date. And then he started saying, 
all the musicians that are going to be on the date, Linda O, the legendary Roy Haynes, um, John Baptiste wrote all of the songs, and then Marcus Gilmore. And once he read that down, I was like, yes, I got to make this happen. So that was the initial conversation. It was history from there. I flew out there and we literally recorded in five, six hours the next day. We barely rehearsed. I saw how Pixar pays so fine attention to detail. As I was setting up in the booth, I saw these three cameras. One was on my face, one was on my body, and then one was on my fingers. And he was like zeroing in. He was like, oh yeah, every single note that your character is playing is actually going to be mimicking the exact notes you're playing. So it's not like some of the vague cartoons you just see kind of fingers floating everywhere. And I was like, this is why Pixar is Pixar. <laughs> yourself as this animated character with all of the very correct animated fingers and all of that. It was crazy. It was so when I got there, they had Dorothea's character. She was a black woman, but she looked a little different. Her hair was like up in a bun. She was a healthier woman. I, I thought they were going to keep that image. But then when I saw the trailers and I saw the character, I was like, oh my gosh, they changed her hair to it was kind of like this, but my hair was shorter. And they even changed the saxophone from a tenor to an alto, which reflected all of the details on my horn, my ligature placement, my hand, even how I'm sitting on the stool. My best friend who goes to all my concerts, she was like, Tia, that looks like you, just the way that you're sitting and you're leaning over and you're adjusting your mouthpiece. I was like, that's crazy. So to see that, it's just really an honor, especially now to be able to be a part of such a transformational platform for young people, our young black girls, six, seven years old, who are like, oh yeah, I know what a saxophone is. And I could play it if I want to, alongside of you know trombone, trumpet, and any other instrument. So I think this is really groundbreaking and it's right in time with where we are in this culture. Let's talk a little bit about the character's personality. Dorothea Williams, she's this legendary saxophoner that Joe Gardner really looks up to. Actress Angela Bassett, she's her speaking voice. You're her musical voice on the saxophone. Dorothea is very serious about her job. She's standoffish. She's pretty intimidating. Is that what it's like to play with you? <laughs> Certain days of the week, no. <laughs> Usually, no. I can kind of go there, and um, I feel like that was like an alternate personality. As you see, my personality is pretty bubbly, but I could get really serious, especially when it's dealing with the music and, and then teaching at times. A lot of my students could probably relate to my characters being more like that <laughs> until we settle into a rhythm. But um, normally I'm pretty bubbly. Yeah. So they made the character look more like you, but she's not exactly yeah, you. Yeah. I mean, some people... May beg to differ, but <laughs> <laughs> so Joe Gardner, he's the main character in Soul. He's a music teacher and he dreams of being a full time performer. A lot of musicians are torn between music education and live performance, but you've already mentioned your teaching and performance. How do you balance both of those paths where you've really succeeded? 
Oh, wow. Uh, a lot of prayer. And I grew up in a household with um, both of my parents being educators and musicians. And I saw them balancing it. Of course, they weren't touring as much. They were pretty much more local. Seeing them really showed me and paved the way for me to say, hey, you can do both. And I remember they would reiterate that. Satya, you can do both. Go ahead and have your plan A, your plan B, and your plan C. If you want to play, that's fine. But go to school, get your degree, and then, you know, have your other thing of where you could potentially do both. So when I landed the Berkeley College gig, I'm really thankful because it really gives me the flexibility to do what I need to do. I have about seven or eight different hats I'm wearing. <laughs> right, that's so much to juggle. Yes. So now that you've seen the finished movie, has it resonated with you? I mean, I've seen the movie three times. The first time I was just kind of like, whoa. I didn't realize how in depth they went with that idea of finding your spark and seeing the struggle, like those dark places that, especially now being in this pandemic as an artist and then otherwise, how we all have had to reassess ourselves, look at ourselves and see, is this what I'm really supposed to be doing? Is this my spark? Is this my purpose? It definitely has penetrated me. And every time I watch it, I find something else that's um, a little different. It's really amazing how this movie correlates with not only my life, but also with what we are all going through right now. Well, Tia, I have loved talking with you. Thank you so much for making time. Yeah, thank you so much, Avery. Denver native Tia Fuller plays saxophone in Soul, which has earned three Oscar nominations. Fuller spoke with Avery Lill in February. The 93rd Academy Awards air Sunday. And that's Colorado Matters. The Oscar goes to... Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Monica Castillo and Daniel Mesher. They see CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.